from the word of the Lord. Psalms 139, verses 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Uh, Let's look quickly now at Luke chapter 1, the account of Jesus, uh, or of Mary pregnant with Jesus. Jesus is in the womb. She goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Verse 39 from Luke chapter 1. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Um, I want to just say a couple of statements relative to current events and after having read Scripture, after just visiting Scripture relative to these subjects. One, firstly, I want to say, we as a church believe that unborn babies are human lives. And I say this with the utmost um, humility, that Because of that, we believe that abortion is murder. It is the taking of an innocent life. My hope and prayer is that one day we would be able to look back at abortion as we do with slavery, where we would say, I can't believe we used to do that. Now, two, loudly, I want to say, if you have had an abortion, we're not here covering or saying these things to heap guilt and shame and condemnation on you. There is forgiveness for you in Christ Jesus like there is forgiveness for me, for my sin, like there is forgiveness for everyone in this room and in the world for everyone's varied sins. This topic is not one in which I'm addressing to try and make anyone feel heaped shame upon them. Okay? We all have fallen short of the glory of God. We all need forgiveness in Christ Jesus. There is healing for your heart in Jesus Christ. There is hope in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Third, the global church, I want to confront some lies that are coming out right now. The global church is already primarily behind the brunt of labor and finances which support more work relative to saving and helping women and children and families in crisis. Last I heard was that for every abortion clinic, there are nine pregnancy centers funded primarily by churches. 
In this city and state, I would like to see our church continue to support and to ramp up our support of the efforts of these efforts. And there are some agenda items relative to this that I'll be speaking to our board about in the coming days and weeks. We want to step up our role in financially, practically, and spiritually supporting and caring for women who are pregnant. Amen. Amen. Fourth, I want to say, let's pray. Pray, 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 pray. Pray for the dominoes continue to fall. Pray for repentance. Pray for courage and boldness. Pray as uh, I know in our community, we have the anchor of hope, Crisis Pregnancy Center, which we are partnered with. And pray that God would protect them because there are hostilities that are arising against those types of organizations in America. Pray that God would lead and guide and continue to bless them. Pray that God would send more funding, more provision, more help, more support, more volunteers. And if the Lord is putting it on your heart, act in support, both financially and with prayer and with volunteering and whatever you can do to show through our actions that we're not a people who just go, yeah, we're right and you're wrong, but we obey the word of the Lord in 1 John 3.18 where John said, beloved, let us not love in word only, but in deed and in truth. That we're not the people who just say this stuff, but we walk it out, we act on it, we show that we care for these women, for these children, for these families, for the disenfranchised, for those who are in difficult places, those who find themselves in the circumstances that make them want to make those decisions, that we show as the body of Christ, we are with you. Amen. Finally, remember, Jesus himself said, you will be hated for my sake. He said, blessed are you when they persecute you and revile you and say all sorts of evil against you. Jesus called us blessed. We need to remember that because there's a lot of things that are being said nowadays and there are friends and family and coworkers and acquaintances and classmates that are going to say things about you and about us and about Christians and if your hope is that you can stay kumbaya with everybody and make sure that you keep everyone liking you while also being biblically faithful and faithful to the holy God of all creation there's oil and water there and we need the word of God to remind us that to stand with the Lord means you will be hated Jesus said they hated me first so they're going to hate you. And we learn to take it on the chin. As Jesus said, turn the other cheek and continue to love. And in the conversations that you might have or will have in the coming days, there is a difference in speaking the truth in love and speaking the truth without love. And my hope is that for us, as a church family, we would be a church that would have seasoned with salt our conversations, that we would have Love and grace, love for the person we're talking to, a commitment to love them more than we are committed to just prove our point and be right. Of course we believe that we're right. 
Of course we believe that we have truth from the word of God, but we don't have to be jerks about it. Amen? Amen. Let's be gracious. Let's be kind in our conversations. Let's not try and have zingers and gotchas. Let's ask questions attempting to understand where someone's at. And then from that, we can answer with what the word of God says. Amen? Amen. Well, that was fun. It's important. It matters. And a lot of people are thinking about this. And, and praise God. I had to repent because I didn't believe that it could actually happen. And so I had to repent and say, Lord, you answer prayer. You answer prayer. Pray, 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 pray. Having said all that, I want to pray before we now get into the sermon. Lord, thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness in our lives. We need you every moment of the day. Lord, I ask as we get into your word that you would, by your Holy Spirit, uh, guide what I say, guide what we hear, guard us from error, uh, both me speaking error and error being heard. Lord, we want the truth. We want to know you. We want to walk in the light. We want to walk in the truth. God, I ask by your Holy Spirit today that as we get into your word, that you would provide illumination, that you would open eyes to see the truth. You would open hearts to receive. You would open minds to believe and that we would see people transformed by the truth of your word, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you guys ever seen one of those movies, I'm sure you probably have, where the protagonist, the main character, has something go wrong and then something else goes wrong and then something else goes wrong and the whole movie is one thing after another that gets worse and worse and worse and worse until the bottom falls out and it is just a movie about bad things happening to this person. And more often than not, these movies have the happy ending, the plot twist, I'm not particularly a fan of these types of movies because they just sit there stoking anxiety the whole time. It's like, what more could happen? What's the next thing that's going to go wrong? And you see things lining up and you're just going, no, no, no. Oh, it happened. I'm not particularly a fan of that style of movie, but there is a movie from my childhood that I loved. It used to be on TV all the time and I haven't seen it in forever, but uh, a movie called The Money Pit. You've seen that with Tom Hanks and uh, Shelley Long, that they play a couple, Walter and Anna, that they find themselves forced to look for a new home because of different circumstances in their life. And through a, through a rather shady realtor friend, Walter learns about a million-dollar distress sale mansion on the market for a mere $200,000, which today I think could get you a tiny house or maybe a two-bedroom ranch. <laughs> because of the time crunch... Uh, that they're in, and the, in, the romantic enchantment of the idea of this place. They snatch it up really quick, make an unwise decision, buy this mansion. But quickly, their romance is quickly discovered as a rotten onion that continues to unfold its rotten layers that peel back to reveal this catastrophic money pit, hence the name, and everything gets worse and worse and worse. From the moment Walter and Anna take possession of the house, it quickly begins to fall apart. Among other problems, first the entire front door frame falls off the house. The staircase, the main staircase in the house collapses while he's trying to climb up it. 
The plumbing is full of what I don't know to call as other than gunk. It's full of some kind of gunk, slime stuff. The electrical catches on fire all throughout the house. The bathtub, as they're filling it up, falls through the floor. The chimney collapses, and my personal favorite, there is a raccoon living in the dumbwaiter. All this bad stuff just keeps happening, and then to make matters worse, Anna's ex-husband is brought back into the scene, and he begins trying to drive a wedge between the two of them and woo Anna back to himself, which finally becomes the straw that breaks the camel's back, and the two of them, Walter and Anna, separate. Now, of course, the story doesn't end this way. Otherwise, it would have gone down as the worst movie of all time. Of course they realize they've made a terrible mistake, that they love each other, that they miss each other, that they misunderstood each other, made assumptions, and they hurt each other, and they want to reconcile and make it right and get back together, and they do, and they get married at the mansion and live there happily ever after, so thankful for this place that they have acquired. Now, Up until this point in our reading plan, if you're new here, our church is doing a reading plan. We're calling it the year of the Bible. We're January to December. We're going Genesis to Revelation, following the main meta-narrative or the overarching story of Scripture. And as uh, we're going through that reading plan this week right now, week 25, we've been reading Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, which are three prophets who all ministered with overlap in, uh, in Judah, while Judah, the kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah, was in exile in Babylonian captivity. And so we read those things this last week. If you want to jump in this reading plan with us, we would love to have you do that. You can grab a reading plan at the info desk once service is out, or you can get it off our website, wog.church. It's at the very top. And this next week, we'll be reading week 26. So you can jump in with us, read week 26, and then we'll talk about it next Sunday. I hope that you do this because there's no way I can teach five days worth of reading in a 40-minute sermon. So please read that plan. And if you're here noticing 25 weeks, we're starting 26, that's the halfway marker. You realize you're halfway through this. And many of you, to the praise of God's grace, have read the Bible more than you ever have. And if that's you, go ahead and pat yourself on the back and thank the Lord for giving you the grace. And if it's not you, go ahead, forgive yourself and jump back in now. If you got so far behind that you're like, oh man, I can't catch up, that's okay. Pick up on week 26 right now and let's move forward in this Bible reading plan. Up until this point in our reading plan, going through the Old Testament, the story of Israel has felt similar in some metaphorical senses to the tragicomedy that is the money pit. Although, minus the comedy, just the tragedy. It's much more dire than a simple home falling apart because of one unwise decision. In the story or it is the story of an entire nation crumbling. Rather than the entire door frame falling out of the front of the house, it was the office of king that continued to fall further and further from the house of God. We saw evil king after evil king get worse and worse and worse. Instead of plumbing of a plumbing system that is full of gunk, we see the hearts of people that are full of sin. Instead of an undesirable ex-husband coming back in and driving a wedge between Walter and Anna, we see Israel continually seduced back to idolatry and worshiping false gods. Instead of a young and in love couple splitting, 
It is the nation of Israel, God's people, that split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And these two kingdoms are in an even lower place of hopelessness as they spiraled into such a state of spiritual dilapidation that God exiles that northern kingdom of Israel to Assyria and the southern kingdom of Judah to Babylon. Now, as we read the book of Jeremiah, he prophesied before, during, and after the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of Judah. And whereas the prophet Isaiah, that's another really prophet, uh, popular prophet, one of the major prophets, Isaiah, it's a big book where he saw way down the line and spoke many, many, many messianic prophecies and prophecies regarding the, the restoration of all things. Jeremiah was much more uh, nearsighted or immediate and therefore overwhelmingly his prophecies were thematic of judgment and destruction and exile. Although, we shouldn't neglect that one of the most significant prophecies of a future hope is in that book, Jeremiah. Now, many of you hear me say, Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, and a prophecy of a future hope. And you go, ah, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans of good, not of evil, plans to prosper you and to give you a future hope. And so those words together probably are sending you there. Let's flip there really quick uh, to Jeremiah chapter 29. We're going to read starting in verse 10 to give us a little context to that phrase. And we'll read the following verses and we'll talk about a few more things to make sure we're rightly understanding that passage. Jeremiah 29 verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, meaning when you've been in Babylon for 70 years, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans of welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. A few things, a few thoughts. This passage, when you read its whole context like this, is a word from God to Judah in Babylonian exile encouraging them and giving them hope and also giving them an accurate expectation of where their hope should be. Notice Jeremiah under the unction of God is saying, hey, you're going to be here for 70 years. Now this is a prophecy of a future hope saying, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, but let's just pause for a moment. Put yourself in their shoes. I'm 37. If I'm there when this is being spoken as a 37-year-old and he says, hey, 70 more years will be in Babylon. It just hit me. The odds are I'm dying in Babylon. Because that would mean it would be, I would be 107 years old when that, egg, or when that return to Israel or Judah would happen. 
Now, some people rarely live that long, which is why if you're 37 like me, you're even just a little older. If you were there that day and you hear him say, 70 years will be in Babylon, you're going, oh, this is my life then. This is my lot. This is where I will be. And so God speaking through Jeremiah is saying, I do know the plans I have for you, plans to give you a future and a hope. But this is why just a few verses earlier in Jeremiah 29, God told them, hey, get settled, get married, and seek the welfare of the city in which I have put you. He's saying, get comfortable, so to speak. Seek the welfare of this city. Let your kids get married. You're going to be here for a while. Now, today, we take that verse, we put it on our coffee mugs, on our T-shirts, on our banners, on our wall, and that is a beautiful, wonderful verse of hope. But we'll take that verse to mean, uh, because of Jeremiah 29, 11, I know that God's going to change this situation that I'm thinking about the way I want him to change it. And can you imagine, again, being one of these Judeans in Babylonian exile, thinking God's going to bring us back out, he's going to fix it, and he's going to save it, oh, 70 years from now. Oh, that's not what, I, I actually won't be around to see that happen then. And so God has a plan, but sometimes that plan isn't the way or how, when, or where we want. But he still has a good plan. Now, there's another thing we want to see from this passage. It's also important that we're aware that this passage is sandwiched front and back by false prophets giving false hope to the people of Judah. If you went and looked at Jeremiah 28, you would read about the prophet Hananiah who was falsely and wrongly prophesying, hey guys, we're only going to be here two years and then the yoke of burden from King Nebuchadnezzar will be lifted and we'll go back home in two years. And of course, everyone goes, thank God, this is going to be over in two years. We can go back to the land that God gave us and we'll be out of this yoke of slavery and Babylonian captivity. Awesome. Sounds great. And even Jeremiah himself responded with, yeah, awesome. Amen. Let it be. But the Lord will show. He says, if this word comes to pass, then we will know that the prophet spoke through the Lord. And God speaks through Jeremiah right after this saying, hey, actually, Hananiah ain't speaking for me. He's lying to the people they're going to be there 70 years, not two years, because I sent them there in judgment for their sin. And so, one, you need to go confront Hananiah, tell him he's not sent by me. He's lying and declaring false prophecies, saying that they're from me when they're not, and he's making my people believe a lie. Now, if you were those people, which message would you rather hear? You want the two-year message, right? We want that. We want what we want, when we want it. We're hoping for our quickest, easiest way out of whatever suffering we might be in, whatever things we might be facing. And so this lying false prophet gives them a false hope of only two years. Problem was that wasn't from the Lord. And the Lord says, no, I've sent you in exile to judge you. You're going to be there 70 years. But... After 70 years, I will fulfill my promise. I'll bring you back, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare, not for evil. Plans to give you future and a hope. 
And then he goes into all this beautiful stuff saying, when you seek for me with all your heart, you're going to find me. I will be found by you. How wonderful is that? These two prophets you have in chapter 28, Hananiah, the false prophet, making up these lies. If you went on in the ends of chapter 29, you'll see there was another false prophet named Shemaiah who was making up these lies. These guys weren't prophesying, they were prophesying. I wish I made that up. Heard someone else say that. They were making up from their own hopes. And listen, in the book of Jeremiah, as well as in the book of Ezekiel, God speaks very strongly to people who speak on his behalf under thus saith the Lord that are not saying things from him. He speaks very strongly towards those people. Now listen, we as a church are continuationists. We do not believe that those gifts have ceased today, but I would say we are continuationists with a cautious seatbelt on because I've seen damage done from people mishandling, misusing, thus saith the Lord, or speaking for God when they are not speaking for God. I don't know if you recall what happened just two years ago. (laughs) Lots of prophets were saying uh, uh, that an election was going to turn out one way, and an and egg gets put on the face of God when we do that. And people go, <laughs> stupid Christians. And so I would encourage us as a church family, I'm not saying God doesn't speak to us. I believe he does. But I believe we should use as much caution and reverence as we can when we go, I think the Lord's telling me, or God told me, or thus saith. For me, if I'm saying that, I know that I know that I know the Lord told me. Beyond that, I'm saying I feel like the Lord is leading me because I don't want to profane his name if I'm wrong. I don't want to make him look bad if I missed it or something like that, okay? Let's not be like Hananiah or Shemaiah. So then Judah gets a true word from God saying, hey, get settled, let your kids get married, seek the welfare of the city I sent you to. You're going to be there for 70 years. By the way, stop listening to false prophets who I didn't send that are deceiving you. When 70 years up, I'm taking you back home for I know the plans I have for you. And even later in chapter 29, Jeremiah condemns another false prophet, Shemaiah. And he says, your exile will be long, (laughs) not two years. So what should Christians today who are not ancient Judeans taken away from, uh, what, what should we take away from this passage? When we read a prophecy from God to ancient Judeans in Babylonian captivity, we need to acknowledge, okay, I'm not an ancient Judean in Babylonian captivity, so what does this mean to me today? There are things that are encouraging to us from Jeremiah 29, 11 when we consider context and handle scripture rightly. And that is the character and nature of God as a good, loving, gracious, forgiving father is revealed in this passage that he could have said, you know what? I'm done. You guys, bad after bad after bad, pursuing Baal again, even after I consume the altar with fire, you returned to Baal again. You started serving other gods. You even began offering your children as sacrifices to Molech and to other gods. God could have said, enough is enough. I have been patient. I have been long-suffering. I'm done with you. You're not my people anymore. But instead... He judges them by their sin, or by, because of their sin, sending them into exile, knowing I still have a good plan for them. 
for I know the plans I have for you. And so in this, we ought to see the character and nature of God is that he does not, thank you, Lord, cast us off and aside as his children, as his people, when we stumble, when we sin. When we sin, what do we do? We repent, we confess, we turn from, and we pursue following the Lord more and more and more. So one, we should see that the heart of God, his character is revealed, that even though he must discipline his people because he is good and loving, you know, you discipline your children because you love them, right? Because he is good and loving, that also because he's good and loving, he doesn't forsake them and leave them there. But his plan is to redeem. His plan is to restore, to buy back. And secondly, the context teaches us to be weary or cautious of messengers who make up lies that turn our hopes aside from where they should be. This reminds me of I'm very acquainted from my past with what is today commonly coined as prosperity gospel, which I abhor. I hate it because I have seen people speak to people, giving them false hope from scriptures, cherry picked and taken out of context, telling them, hey, as long as you love, serve and follow Jesus and give enough and have enough faith, you should never suffer. You should never be sick. You should never be in lack. And if you are, it's because you didn't have enough faith or you didn't confess enough scripture or you weren't faithful to God or you were out of his will. Remember, the book of Job is about a guy who was suffering and his friends came to him saying, hey, Job, it's obvious this is happening in your life because you're in sin. And Job's like, no, I'm not. In fact, the opening of the book gives us the context that he was a righteous man. Job's friends say, hey, you're suffering because you're in sin. He says, no, I'm not. God, I don't know what you're doing. God answers. Job is, is convicted and, and sorry that he ever questioned God in his suffering. But God says to Job, you need to pray for your friends. They need to repent because they spoke wrongly about me. What did Job's friends say? They said, you are being judged for your sin. So this idea that every bit and ounce of suffering that happens in our life, we do see in scripture that God chastens those whom he loves, that there is discipline from the Lord. So we do always want to continue to evaluate, search ourselves and say, Lord, search my heart, seek, seek me, see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me into life everlasting. Search me, help me see if there's something in my life that's not pleasing to you that I need to repent of. Beyond that, we need to trust the Lord and listen. Should we pray for healing? Absolutely, yes. If you ever tell me that you're sick or you're injured, I am praying for you to be healed. And I believe God still does miracles today. I believe he does. I also trust him with outcomes that I don't understand. And so, when there's a gospel today that is told that as long as you do these things, it, the formula of all this stuff together from this cherry-picked verse and this cherry-picked verse out of their context equals that God is going to always prosper, bless, and make you healthy. And if you're not, it's because you're out of his will and you don't have enough faith or you haven't confessed enough. I, I, I can't stand that. And I believe it's relative to what these guys are doing, teaching false messages, giving the people false hope, wherein Jeremiah comes in and says, actually, we're going to be here 70 years, guys. So get settled. Mary. Seek the welfare of this city which you have been exiled into. And we step back recognizing also the Old Testament at large is a picture of where we are today, wherein we are not in Babylonian exile living in a place that is not our home, but we are living in a world that is not our home, where we continue to look forward 
See, our hope is not to be in the here and now, but in what God has promised us to bring us safely home to eternity with him. The ultimate prosperity, his presence. This is what we look forward to. And if you read the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the famous hall of faith, if you will, where all the patriarchs are listed, where it says that Abraham, by faith, obeyed God, that Noah, by faith, built an ark, that, that uh, Joseph, by faith, and it just goes patriarch after patriarch after patriarch. All these guys who, by faith, obeyed God, served God, lived for God. And it says for each of them that all of these people did it in a way that proves that they're not looking for their home here and now, but we're looking to an eternal city, a heavenly city, that even back then in the Old Testament, they recognized that they were living for a different home, that this world is not our home. Again, listen, hear me. God cares about what you're going through. God cares about your, your sickness, your suffering, whatever you're going through. And we should pray and ask the Lord to intervene but also if your hope is in those things changing to the way that you're hoping just like they're changing that it is the, or hoping that it is that 2 years that they get out you can be dis, uh, you can be disillusioned and i have seen many many people from the circles that i i was in for so long become disillusioned or lose their faith because they were doing all those formula check marks and god didn't come through And I remember one time uh, a certain uh, pastor that, that I had a lot of respect for died in his 50s from cancer. And they were doing all these right things. They were confessing the scriptures. They were, they were uh, you know, givers. They were faith people. And, and I remember asking someone, you know, how could that have happened? I thought, why, why didn't God come through? And, and someone in that circle told me, well, there must have been sin in their life that we didn't know about, and the book of Job just shoots that down. I wasn't planning on saying all this, so I don't know if the Holy Spirit has it for somebody or not. Our hope, if it is in our circumstances, this is why the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, and while you hear me quote this probably too often, maybe not, from Philippians where he says, I've learned in whatever state I am in to be content. He says, I've been abounded a, a, a and I've been abased, saying I've been rich and I've been poor. I've learned in whichever state I'm in to be content. I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all these things. I can go through hardship. In another passage to, to the Corinthians, he's talking about how I was shipwrecked. I was beaten, shipwrecked this many times, beaten this many times, stoned this many times. All the things that he went through, that this is the same guy who calls those things light and momentary affliction. How can you say that? You can only say that when you recognize this isn't my home and I have my hope set in an eternity that is not here and now. And when we get there and we behold the face of Jesus Christ face to face and we fall flat on the floor and we echo the seraphim saying, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory and all we will care about is beholding him and worshiping him and reveling in his presence. We won't care about anything else and we will look back and go, 
light and momentary affliction. And I'm not trying to make light of your suffering, but compared, Paul said in Romans, to the glory that it is, that is to come. It is light and momentary. We continue to pray for healing. We continue to, the, to pray that God would provide and we trust that we will see it. And if we don't, we know that Jesus is enough. Although this is a wonderful prophecy of hope to an exiled people of Judah, captive in Babylon, it pales in comparison to the powerful, hopeful prophecy we see in Jeremiah 31 from our reading plan this week. Turn a couple of pages, Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each, each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. See, Jeremiah 29, 11 is talking about fixing external consequences, bringing them back from the consequences that have resulted from Israel and Judah's disobedience. Jeremiah 31, the passage we just read, is talking about fixing the core of the problem that keeps causing the disobedience. He's saying, I'm not going to slap a Band-Aid on this. I have a plan for your future which involves open heart surgery. The problem is actually that your heart is dead in sin and there's a new covenant that I'm going to make with you where I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put my law in your heart. I'm going to write it on your heart. He's saying I'm not going to at that point with that new covenant lead you like I did your father's where I'm the dad who just yesterday had to lead one of my daughters by the hand into what she did not want to do that I knew was for her good. And I led her by the hand, her kicking and screaming and dragging. And I led her. You are going to do this thing that I know is for your good that she didn't think was good. And he's saying the new covenant isn't going to be like that. Instead, I'm going to write it on your hearts so that I'm not dragging you along by your hand, but your heart wants to follow me. Your heart wants to please. Your heart wants to obey God. Your heart wants to serve. In fact, let's look at Ezekiel, another prophet who was prophesying in the same era as Jeremiah. Ezekiel chapter 36, we're going to see him saying similar, saying the same thing with a few different ways. Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Therefore, says the, the, or therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, 
but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Let's pause for a moment. A lot of people struggle with God's commitment to his name, to his renown, for his namesake that we see in Scripture. His commitment to his glory, that I will do this for my own glory. And even right here, he's telling the people, hey, I'm not doing this because you're awesome. Actually, you're not. And if we would have kept on reading, he said, actually, you should be ashamed. He's like, I'm not doing this for your sake. I'm actually doing this because my name has been profaned, because you're my people, and now you're in exile, and I'm going to do this to, for, for the holiness of my name. And we hear things like this, and we go, wow, really, God? Like, why would a good God be so all about himself like that? Why would he seem so narcissistic, some would say? Why has he got to be all about himself and his name and his glory and his praise? Let me paint a metaphor for you that one of my friends, we were talking this last week in a, in a discipleship group, and, and we were talking about this, and I was talking about how people struggled, and, and he brought up this beautiful metaphor, this illustration. He said, what if... Every single one of us was just poor beyond poor. We were filing bankruptcy. We, we were just in over our heads in debt. And what if there was a bank in the community that said, hey, guys, good news. We're giving $5 million to everyone who's in debt because we have so much money and we are generous and so we just want to pay your debt and take care of you so that you can let everybody know how generous we are. To the person who is receiving the $5 million, they are not going, wow, you're really kind of about your name, aren't you? Why do you got to be so committed to your name? Why do you care that I let people know how generous you are? No, you know what that person's response is? Thank you. Th thank you. Thank you so much. I was in trouble. I couldn't get myself out of this trouble. Your generosity is going to pay my debts. Not only my debts, but I'll be able to help my family. Not only my family, I'll be able to do more. I'll be able to re I'll be able to make such a difference with the generosity you're giving me. Guys, let me tell you about what this bank did. They are generous. Right? That person's not going, wow, really? <laughs> there, you're all about yourself, aren't you? No. The problem is we don't recognize that we're poor. This is why in the book of Revelation, he said, you think you're rich, but you don't see that you're blind and that you're poor and you're naked. People who are self-righteous thinking that we're good thinking that we've got the goods to bring to the table instead of acknowledging, I don't got this. We sing the song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washes it white as snow. When we wrestle with this idea like, oh, God's commitment to his glory, to his renown, to his name, to his praise, it's because we don't realize we need the money. 
spiritually. I'm not preaching prosperity gospel. I'm saying we need God's generosity of his grace, of his love, of his mercy. He is saying, because I am gracious, I will give you grace. Because I am loving and merciful, I will give those provisions to you. I will not remember your sins anymore. I will pay your debt. I will bring you back, not because you're awesome, but because I'm awesome. And your response when you see that and recognize it, that you're only hope is in the provision of the grace of God, then your response is, you're awesome. Praise God. Hallelujah. You are good. And I don't have to sit here telling you, go tell people about Jesus. When you recognize the debt that you were in against a holy God, and not only did he pay it, but he paid it with the blood of his son. The only appropriate response is to the praise of his glorious grace. Praise God. He's telling Israel and Judah, listen, I'm not telling you to take two aspirin and call me in the morning. I'm saying the problem is the cancer of sin in your heart. And unless you have a heart transplant, you are damned. Again, people today don't want to hear that they're sinners. They don't want to be confronted by these ideas. That's your truth. Don't talk to me about this. And any doctor who did not give anyone an accurate diagnosis, we would call a bad doctor. We confront sin. The scripture confronts sin. The Holy Spirit confronts sin. God confronts our sin because he cares. Because he loves and he knows it is destruction. See, this new covenant that God promises in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 is a game changer. God tells his people, I'm making a new covenant with you because you are incapable of holding up your end of the deal. In, ancient Near Eastern, uh, in, in the ancient Near East, there were three types of covenants. The first was a treaty. And a covenant, again, is an agreement between two or more parties in which obligations are placed on one or both. A treaty was between two parties of unequal power in which the stronger placed obligations on the weaker party. This is the Old Testament law. God, the stronger, the holy, the perfect righteous, places his expectations on fallen people. A second type of covenant was a contract, and this was between parties of equal bargaining power and consisted of mutual obligations. This is like the contracts mostly that we partake in of today. When you sign that cell phone contract, contract or you get writer's cramp from closing on your house, all those papers you're signing, you are in a contract between two parties of equal interest. I got what you want, you got what I want, let's work together. Finally, the third and perhaps the most interesting type theologically is the type most applicable in this passage, which was the grant. A grant. It was between parties, again, of unequal power in which the stronger obligated himself for the benefit of the weaker. This is the new covenant wherein the stronger God has committed himself to the weaker to come down to take sin on his body on the cross. And as much as the first covenant was functionally a treaty where God was saying, I'm offering you peace with me and prosperity and protection from me as long as you hold up your end of the deal, which we couldn't do because we were dead in sin, the new covenant was more of a grant. The ever faithful, ever gracious, ever loving God grants mercy forgiveness, 
grace, reconciliation to his people. And the biggest game changer of all was not that he was inviting them again to try harder and do better. He was instead saying, I'm going to fix you. You broken person better try harder and do better. No, he's saying, I'm going to fix the problem. See, there's a problem with humanity that the law of God cannot produce in man and that we are weakened by the flesh is what Romans tells us. In fact, if we went to Romans chapter 5, we would see where it says that Adam sinned and sin entered the world and death by sin. That when Adam and Eve sinned in God's holy and perfect creation where there was no sin, no sickness, no pain, no suffering, no sorrow, no tears, Adam and Eve sinned and welcomed sin into God's perfect creation and by that welcoming death. Remember they were told, on the day you eat of that fruit, you will die. Did they fall over dead? No, they became spiritually dead dead in sin. And the problem is that they pass that sin nature on to their kids. We see it immediately and that the two brothers, Cain and Abel, Cain kills his brother. That sin was passed on and on to their kids and to their kids and to their kids all the way to you and me. Every single one of us was born in sin. The psalmist David said, in sin did my mother conceive me or in iniquity did my mother conceive me. In sin, um, did my mother conceive me? And so we recognize every single one of us are born with a sin nature. This is why you don't have to teach kids to lie. This is why you don't have to teach kids to be selfish. Because we're born in sin. And in one way, in one situation, I will agree with the philosopher Lady Gaga. We were born this way. We were born in sin. This is why Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. He comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, it's obvious because of the things that you do that you're from the kingdom of God. How do we get into the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, you want in? You have to be born again. And Nicodemus, with his carnal natural mind, goes, that's awkward. Um, are you saying I'm supposed to somehow get back into my mother's womb? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Unless someone is born of water and of spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. People say, oh, I was just born this way. This is who I am. Accept it. No, we have to be born again, given the new heart from Jeremiah 31 and from Ezekiel 36. Because God does not change who he is and what he requires, but he also has not left us alone with a burden that we are not capable of lifting. He sent his son to take the contract of the law and to sign it paid in full when on the cross he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice saying, it is finished. If you were there in that day, you would have heard those words as a contract fulfilling statement. The work is done. The contract is fulfilled. God sent his son to keep up the part of the deal that we could not. So that we don't walk around with this self-righteous swagger where we're like, yeah, I'm better than the rest of the world. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like the sinner. No, we go, man, praise God's grace because we too were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, spirit of the air, uh, just like the sons of disobedience among whom we all once walked. 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And like, and by nature, we're children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in love because of the great love with which he loved us, that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. By grace, you can't earn it. You can't merit it. You can't be good enough. The law is too high. Jesus Christ came as the only one who ever looked at that high hurdle and jumped it. He's the only one who ever saw that weight of the law and lifted it. We can't. He did in our place dying on the cross so that we could look at the generous benefactor that is God and say, thank you. Praise you. You are good. I owe you all. I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. In this life we live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We respond by giving our lives to him and for him. The new covenant is not a covenant of do. It is a covenant of done. And that finished work of Jesus Christ, when we believe it, we receive the Holy Spirit. He transforms us, changes us, makes us new. And we look at what he has accomplished. And we don't look at the contract that we're trying to uphold anymore. Instead, now we uphold the ID that we're children of God. It's not that we're trying to abstain from sin so that God will accept us. No, he accepts us in Jesus Christ. It's that I don't sin anymore because that's not who I am. Will we still stumble? Sure. Will we still wrestle with the flesh? Yeah. Will we still battle temptation? Yes, but we recognize now that's not who I am. I'm a child of God, made righteous by the blood of Christ. God, I pray today for everyone here, everyone watching online, everyone who might even watch afterwards. God, I ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would open eyes to see the truth that every single one of us needs you, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We need your Holy Spirit work in our hearts to empower us to do what we could not do before, to change our head knowledge of how we're supposed to live into a transformed heart that gives us the desire to live righteously. God, I pray today that you would bring salvation to those who don't know you in this room or in the commons or in our kids' wing or listening online. Bring them to genuine repentance, turning from sin, placing their faith, their trust, their hope in Jesus Christ, and that, God, you would radically transform them so that the people around them go, what happened to you? And that you would make us all ministers of your gospel of reconciliation for our good and for your glory to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Would you stand this morning?